Back in April, Connecticut's House of Representatives gathered to debate and vote on a whole bunch of legislation. There was a bill about service animals, a bill establishing a supermarket food donation program. And then there was the bill about abortion. And with that, will the clerk please call House Calendar 383? A young representative named Matt Blumenthal got up to talk about it. Representative Blumenthal. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. For almost 50 years, the Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade has protected an individual's fundamental right to decide whether and when to be pregnant. The bill Blumenthal described was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. It looked ahead to what the world might look like if Roe versus Wade gets overturned by the Supreme Court. It imagines women suddenly traveling great distances for abortion care. And it takes seriously the idea that states like Texas might suddenly find themselves at odds with states like Connecticut. Other states around the country have started to pass laws deputizing private citizens as essentially vigilante bounty hunters to sue any person or organization, physician, nurse, clinic, friend, even the Uber driver, who assists an individual in obtaining an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. People have been calling this bill a safe haven law for abortion. Of all the places where abortion access is under fire, Connecticut, I don't put it up there. Like, the the right to abortion in Connecticut has been enshrined in state law for over three decades. You're right. Here in Connecticut, we have taken measures to protect the right to legal, safe abortion. However, we're still under threat from other states. I wanted to talk to Representative Blumenthal because it felt to me like he was a couple of moves ahead in the three-dimensional chess game of abortion politics. His law basically presumes Roe's going to fail. So what happens when another state wants to punish someone for doing something that is completely legal in his jurisdiction? We've seen that states across the nation, including uh, Texas and Missouri and Idaho, are not seeking to ban abortion just within their borders, but in other states where it's expressly legal. Missouri in particular has, in passing its law, targeted specifically a clinic in Illinois. And we believe that that's the route that states all across the nation that are anti-choice are going to be pursuing. So we wanted to make sure that we could ensure the safety not only of women who came here for legal abortion care, but also our providers, uh, our residents, Uh, make sure that we're a safe haven for this care that we've decided is legal here in Connecticut. Were there any people who heard you were drafting this legislation, the safe haven legislation, and thought you were a little paranoid? Definitely. And we even heard it in the debate in the House. There were people who said, this is completely unnecessary, bro is fine, we don't need this. And just a week or two later, they were proven flatly wrong. Today on the show, if that leaked Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe v.ersus Wade is a warning shot, what now? Connecticut is battening down the hatches. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, one thing I noticed when I was doing a little research was the way your state has really done a full 180 on this issue. Like Connecticut was once the first state in America to enact an explicit ban on abortions. Now it's poised to become a safe haven for patients seeking abortion services. It's ironic. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we were back in the day, one of the kind of epicenters of the Comstock laws. And actually, uh, that's one of the reasons why Griswold versus Connecticut was Griswold versus Connecticut, that Griswold found the right to contraception and was one of the first cases to find a right to privacy. The Comstock laws basically banned putting things in the mail where women could learn about abortion services and and contraceptives. Yes, exactly. Uh, Anthony Comstock was uh, a a kind of historic uh, exemplary uh, prude who was very focused on controlling sexuality uh, in whatever way he could, especially women's sexuality. And it really emphasizes, you know, his world historic prudeness um, and, and how that motivated him to essentially impose his vision of sexuality on everyone else. He was really afraid of women's sexuality and it just kind of obsessed him. And I guess it would have to be to dedicate the amount of energy he did to controlling it. Hmm. But yeah, so Connecticut has done a 180 over the years. We used to be a state that really controlled uh, these aspects of people's lives. And uh, over the years, it really changed. And we've embraced personal freedom, uh, embraced women's rights, and we're proud to be a leader on these issues today. I want to go back to where your story of this bill starts. And to me, it's it's when you founded the Reproductive Rights Caucus that you chair in the Connecticut General Assembly. And this is a new caucus. It, it seems to me like it was formed right in the wake of oral arguments in this case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, that basically we're all talking about now because a draft opinion has been released saying that that may be the case that overturns Roe. So was it really in the wake of those oral arguments that you started thinking with your colleagues, we need to do more here? Yes, and especially in the U.S. versus Texas oral arguments on the preliminary injunction. SB 8, the law in Texas, the bounty law. Exactly. And, you know, the thing that shocked me most when I heard those oral arguments was, you know, if you want to overturn Roe, there's a case coming right down the pike in Dobbs to do it directly. But the Texas law is kind of such an open flouting of the court's power Uh, of the Constitution's applicability. Um, The fact that the court was taking it seriously and seemed like it was not going to block it and ultimately did not block it, to me, clearly indicated that they were planning to completely overrule Roe. Just the fact that they couldn't even wait for the Dobbs case to do it, to me, seemed a really extreme and aggressive reaction. And, And that's what spurred me into action and 
I think, what spurred my colleagues into action as well. Yeah. How did it start? Were you guys like texting each other? Like, what do we do here? Like, how'd you decide to lean in? Yeah. So I I reached out to a colleague of mine who's been really active on these issues, uh, Representative Jillian Gilchrist of West Hartford. And I said, would would you want to form a caucus on this? I think we have to do something. Almost instantly, we became one of the biggest caucuses in uh, the Capitol here at over 50 members within a couple of weeks. This caucus is kind of an interesting place to find you because you're a person without a uterus. And <laughs> I like it. But I have to say I was surprised. Do, is there a story here of why this is an important issue to you? I'll say this. Um, you shouldn't need strong women in your life to believe that the right to control your own body as a woman is essential to equality and autonomy and your ability to pursue your full potential and your dreams in life. But I do have those people in my life, and it certainly does not hurt in me coming to those conclusions. I view it, as I said before, as a human rights issue. I think if you believe in women's equality, you you should also believe that they should be able to control their own bodies without interference from the government or politicians. You know, data that we've seen out there indicate that the number of abortions don't change drastically when it's illegal. What changes is that women are hurt and women die. Let's talk about your bill specifically and break down exactly what it does. What this bill really does is it prevents the investigative machinery of the state of Connecticut from being employed to assist in any investigation, any civil litigation, any criminal prosecution from out of state that's trying to impose liability or punishment on somebody for engaging in abortion care that's legal here in the state of Connecticut. Yeah, and it's interesting, though, because it does more than that, too. Like, one thing it does, at least my understanding is, it expands the field of people who can perform abortions. So I'm kind of imagining you wondering, like, okay, if 26 states, which is the estimate right now, won't have access to abortion after Roe. Where are all these people going to go? They're going to go here. So I need to expand who can do this procedure because otherwise all of my constituents will be impacted. That's absolutely true. We've heard from uh, people here in Connecticut that the wait time to get uh, an abortion can be up to two weeks. Um, So we already have, in some sense, a provider shortage. We have to make sure that we have the providers that can provide it safely that we have the funding to ensure that people, regardless of their means, can obtain the health care they deserve and need. So tell me exactly how the bill works to protect your providers and even patients who might be coming from other states to receive care in Connecticut. Yeah, so the bill, first of all, it prevents any state or local agency or any law enforcement from cooperating with any other state's investigation, whether criminal, civil, or otherwise, uh, that would seek to impose liability on abortion care or reproductive health care that's legal here in the state of Connecticut. It also creates a medical privacy protection that prevents the disclosure of medical records regarding reproductive health care that's legal here in the state. And I think one of the more innovative portions of it is something called a clawback provision. It essentially is a private cause of action that says that a person who is sued under one of these bounty laws in another state can countersue the person who sued them to get reimbursement. This is if they got an abortion in Connecticut. 
Right. If well, if they got sued for doing anything to assist in someone obtaining abortion, where that something that they did was in Connecticut. Oh, so you could have a daughter in Texas, but you're a mom in Connecticut and you're helping her and you're protected. Exactly. And and the reason why we wanted to make sure that was defined broadly is because the Texas law is so broad. One of the parts of this law that I found most bracing was that it would prevent Connecticut from extraditing individuals who who might be being investigated for providing reproductive health services. And the way my colleague Mark Joseph Stern put it is that this part of the law is a chilling analog to free state efforts to shelter fugitive slaves before the Civil War, to not have to send them back. And I just wondered if you were thinking about that when you wrote this bill. Uh, The answer is absolutely. It it was one of the first things I found in my research as I was looking into what we could do to prevent other states from interfering with us here in Connecticut was I found this history in the 1850s of these personal liberty laws on which Connecticut was a leader. We passed an 1854 law called, uh, excuse me, an act in defense of personal liberty that was one of the strongest in the Northeast in terms of trying to block or impede the fugitive slave law. We definitely took inspiration from that and trying to craft this law. And what we did in this law is say, if whatever you did wasn't illegal here, we're not going to return you. The world that your bill imagines is a pretty scary place. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I think that has been kind of most deluded about some of the conservatives' rhetoric on the Supreme Courts is they say, you know, we need to get the Supreme Court and the courts, quote, out of the abortion business. And if Roe is overturned, the courts are going to be constantly in the abortion business, uh, deciding interstate issues that they've never had to decide before at a rate and at a volume that it would be completely foreign to anyone looking at the law today. There's been reporting in the Washington Post this past weekend about federal legislators uh, looking to enact a federal abortion ban that would be nationwide. Uh, But even just looking at states, they're going to be trying to impose criminal consequences if Roe gets overturned. And if it's not, civil consequences on legal abortion in places where it is legal. Back after a quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I watched debate you had on the floor of the General Assembly, there was passionate opposition from some members of the legislature's Black and Puerto Rican caucus. 
let's come up with birth control, population growth, eugenics. We hear about Margaret Singer and going to knocking on people's doors, Planned Parenthood workers knocking on people's doors and encouraging black mothers to abort their children. And they were talking about this relationship between the history of abortion in this country and race. She said that it's used as birth control in our community. The fact that if you look back, abortion was seen as a tool of eugenics, of perfecting the race. And so there's no way that I can accept a system that would intentionally take a baby for my mother. It's ugly stuff. And that's correct. That That is true. And these are arguments that are being made in good faith. So I wonder how you address the concerns of your colleagues. Yeah, so uh, I think, I mean, if you look at the history of this country, there is not a corner of it that has not been deeply affected by racism, historical, personal, and systemic. And it just further emphasizes to me how personal this decision is and why it should be left to the individual affected and not interfered with by politicians and the government. Your bill does face potential legal hurdles. Some observers wonder if the fact that Connecticut won't aid in a prosecution, if that violates the norms of legal interstate cooperation. I know you're a lawyer. Is that a credible concern? Uh, I would say in response, first of all, that the laws that we're seeking to protect people against are even more aggressively violating those norms of interstate cooperation. Because usually one state doesn't really reach out and try to make things illegal in other states. Exactly. And there's no constitutional provision or any other federal law provision mandating that states have to do what other states want them to. Uh, to pursue either a criminal or civil investigation or litigation. States do cooperate on these issues, but they do it through essentially contract law. They all have specific procedures and processes for what the states will go through before they cooperate on one of these investigations or litigations. It's certainly not mandatory that a state would cooperate. Do you ever think about the way these norms are changing and what it means for the country at large if the states are slapping at each other back and forth on these kinds of basic issues of cooperation? Yeah, I think it's really problematic. And one thing I'd emphasize about our law is that it is purely defensive. It essentially says, you know, to Texas, to Idaho, to Missouri, you know, lay down your sword and we'll lay down our shield. None of the provisions in our soon-to-be law would have any effect unless another state tried to impose its policy preferences around reproductive health care on us. So let's presume your bill is signed into law, judged constitutional, holds up in court, all those things. It doesn't really change the fact that so many states are really on the precipice of banning abortions if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. And I've got to wonder whether legislation like this will make a big difference, especially because Connecticut is solidly in such a blue part of the country. Like, doesn't that make a difference, the fact that you are where you are and 
you're not right next to Texas. Yeah, I, I think it does help that we are in this area of the country, but it does not make us invulnerable. We're not fully protected. We're not immune. If doctors or nurses or other providers think that they could face ruinous money damages or that they could be criminally prosecuted for providing care to the wrong person, they may simply just decide that they can't provide that care. And that would hurt our residents here in the state of Connecticut as well. There's one more thing I want to talk about, which is you are in a kind of unique position as a state legislator in that your dad is a senator (laughs) and he's a powerful guy in Washington. And I can't help but think about that when I think about this bill that you've authored. The conversation I heard in the wake of this decision being leaked from the Supreme Court, this draft decision, was like, listen, Congress has to do something. Washington has to do something here. And that's essentially what the justices are saying, right? They're saying, okay, well, we're going to get out of this and let, you know, let these folks do their work. Think of that what you will. Do you ever want to just like shake him and say, I need more here? Like, I, <laughs> I feel like I'm doing it all. Well, I, I will say that he doesn't need to be shaken. He's one of the primary sponsors and co-authors of the Women's Health Protection Act. But there are other federal legislators that I do want to shake. And I won't name any names, but I feel like people have been way too complacent for way too long. You know, I, I'm grateful that I'm in a position here in the state legislature in Connecticut that I can have an impact. But I, I agree. I think we need to ensure nationwide protection for reproductive rights. And we need legislators who are willing to do that at the federal level. Representative Blumenthal, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Matt Blumenthal is the state representative for Connecticut's 147th district. He represents Stamford and Darien. His father is U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Elena Schwartz, and Carmel Del Shad. We are getting a ton of support right now from Sam Kim and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. We will be back in this feed, bright and early, tomorrow. Catch you then. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.